Hi, I'm Rick Hess, Director of Education Policy Studies at the American Enterprise Institute. And I'm Pedro Noguera, Dean of the USC Rossi School of Education. Welcome to our podcast, Common Ground, Conversations on Schooling. The two of us often fall on different sides of the big questions related to schooling and education. Here we talk through the educational issues of the day in a search for deeper understanding and at times common ground. I guess it was December 2019, before we'd ever heard of COVID-19, before the pandemic, before we shut down schools and colleges, before the racial turmoil of the past 10 months. I reached out to you and I said, hey, how about if we try to have some kind of ongoing conversation about all of these issues we fight about, civics education and American history and testing and school choice, and try to turn it into a book. And you and I spent, what, six months last year uh, writing, you know, really letters back and forth via email. And the book is just, uh, just now coming up. But what strikes me is as we were doing this, watching this larger debate play out in the country where everybody crouches with their team and yells these big things as loud as they can, launches them to the social media, or yell, yell them on you know, MSNBC or CNN or Fox. And you and I, who disagree about a lot of stuff, because you're on the board of the nation and I'm kind of an unapologetic right winger, we were able to talk about some of these really heated issues. And I'd come away saying, you know what? That's a really reasonable stance. Like, I might not buy it, but I totally get where Pedro is coming from. And it just seems like such a missing piece. Yeah, you know, I've always valued debate, um, reasonable civil debate with people I disagree with. And throughout my career, I've done that. I think that it's missing from American politics today. That is that we, we know there are differences, but what we don't see is those differences aired in a way that people can understand the positions and, and that where there's actually some acknowledgement of the reasonableness of certain positions that we might disagree with. And I think that's what we try to do in this, in this book that is, I think, going to be important to the field. So many of the issues that right now divide us in education, say an issue like testing, you know, high stakes testing, and there's going to be a lot of attention on that now related to the pandemic and whether or not we're going to test kids either before they come back or this spring. You know, both of us, I think, agree that there's a need for assessment. You know, assessment's a critical tool for education but how it's done also matters. And I think that acknowledging the complexity of the issues is an important part of why dialogue is necessary. And I think listeners will appreciate the fact that we don't just try to take safe positions on a lot of issues. You know, it's funny, I mean, the safe positions thing, uh, you and I have both been doing this long enough and we're insulated enough because we're old and we've had some professional success that we can say stuff that's gonna tick off people who are supposedly on our side. But in a lot of these debates, I think people are scared to say the wrong thing because they don't want to get cut off from their team. They don't want people to cancel them. They don't want their funders to stop funding them. So on the testing thing, usually it's, you know, you're for testing or you're against testing. I don't get this. Every teacher I've ever seen, whether they like tests or not, does assessment every day. They're asking kids questions to figure out if the kids understand things. They're giving kids written exercises or quizzes or something to figure out what kids have learned or what they haven't so that they can help them. But doing this in big formal state tests is a different version of it. And that can either be helpful. It can give parents and taxpayers and educators good insight into what kids know, or it, it can distort schooling. It can get folks too narrowly focused on test prep. It can cause us to ignore important skills that aren't being tested. But it's not that tests are good or bad, I don't think. 
and I think we agree on this, it's that testing is a tool and you can either use it in a way that you're doing important work or yeah. you're just swinging a hammer, breaking windows. Yeah, but I think what's happened over the last several years is the tests have driven everything. And that, I think, has led to so much of the pushback that we've seen across the country from parents. And it's interesting, a lot of affluent parents have objected to their kids being judged based on tests, especially when they were not adequately prepared for those tests, which we saw with the Common Core. So I think a lot of the pushback is very reasonable and, and unpacking that, really looking at it. You know, I go to so many districts where they can tell you if a kid is low, medium or high, but they don't know what to do about it. Right. That is what, what how do we take a kid who's not performing at grade level and move them forward? And that, I think, shows us that we have put the emphasis on the wrong thing. You know, that if we only assess, but then don't really develop robust interventions and supports for kids, what have we accomplished? And and I think pointing that out is important because a lot of times I think the policymakers don't really get that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's right. I think there's also this, when we talk about education reform, there tends to be this fascination with these big things. So, you know, creating tests and then we can measure it and feels a lot of times like the conversation winds up getting real removed from parents. Parents are saying, well, you know what? Your rating system didn't show that my teacher was effective, but the teacher actually seems to be doing a really good job with my kid. They're learning stuff. They like going to school. They're interested. And I feel a lot of times like our debates wind up being, well, the parent's wrong. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to teach you that you, the teacher who seems to be doing with your kid is actually bad because their value-added reading score isn't moving as much. And it feels like this weird dismissal of the real lives of families and kids. And honestly, I feel like that's part of how the conversation around school reopening seems to be playing out. That a lot of these conversations about whether remote learning is working or not is about, are you getting four hours of instruction? And is it synchronous or asynchronous? And it feels pretty far removed from our kids feeling connected, our kids feeling like they're somebody's there who actually cares for them. Do kids actually feel like they're learning and engaged? We wind up with these conversations which are about things that adults can measure, whether or not they're things that actually capture the real lives of kids and families. I've seen um, so much damage done when uh, we, you know, it's so important to look for evidence of learning, but a test score doesn't really provide that. And you need much more evidence than that. And you know, the truth is most private schools don't rely on standardized tests to make judgments about kids. They look at a broad array of evidence. They wanna know, can the kid really write? Can they read? You know, where do the problems lie? And uh, I think that's what most parents want. They want really meaningful information about the learning that their kids are experiencing. I think that's what teachers want too. But you know, the debates prevent us from really getting into the complexity of the issues. You know, I think about charter schools, which has been framed as either you're for or against. And you know, my attitude is some of them I like, some of them I don't like, right? And I can talk in more detail about the ones I like and when I think charter schools play a constructive role, but I can also talk about when I think they play a damaging role in some districts. Again, I think the value of a conversation like this with you, Rick, is that we start to break down the ways in which our discussions, our dialogue becomes polarized and dichotomized and keeps us from addressing, I think, the messy complexity of educational issues. I think a point you've made, you make in our book, and then you've made, I've heard you make time and again, and we talked about this, 
is there's a realistic, there's a pragmatic dimension to actually the people who actually do this work well. Like when you're in schools and you're in school systems, private, public, it doesn't matter. You realize how complicated a good school is, that it's a million things happening, how kids are interacting with each other, how adults are interacting with kids. And when you wind up in the world of education advocacy, when you wind up trying to make schools better by writing legislation, you have to simplify. And so there's this massive disconnect between what happens in the world of education advocacy and legislation and how schools actually play out in practice. I get frustrated when I feel like this becomes an excuse for schools not to serve kids well. When I hear some of my friends, for instance, the teacher unions, explaining that schools ain't going to open now, they might not open in the spring, maybe they'll open in 2025 because it's so complicated. That's not what I'm talking about. But what I, what I do think is you got to recognize that these fi simple fixes we have often play out of the real world real differently than the proposal. We saw this with Common Core, with teacher evaluation, with No Child Left Behind. And when the debate is dominated by the 10% on one side who are screaming and writing angry tweets and giving speeches and the 10% on the other side who are doing it, the 60, 70, 80% of folks in the middle who are like, look, actually it's complicated. I wanna think this through, I wanna be reasonable, wind up just kind of hunkering down or getting drowned out. And so for me, part I think of kind of the mission statement for what we're doing here is to try to give some energy and some focus on that middle 60, 70, 80% I agree. who are sick and tired of being shouted down by people who are busy all day spinning their agendas. I think that that uh, kind of common sense wisdom is too often missing. But part of the problem is political, right? Policymakers have to figure out, okay, how are we, we're going to put money into schools. How do we then hold them accountable for outcomes? And, you know, I like to point out to people that as problematic as No Child Behind is and was, it wasn't as though before No Child Behind, everything was great, right? We literally had some kids graduating from school who could barely read and write uh, because we weren't looking at the evidence of learning, the evidence that they were prepared. The problem now is that we only evidence we're looking at is a test score. And we still see kids getting into college who pass the standardized test, but whose skills are pretty limited and who particularly lack things like independence, <laughs> um, the ability to make good decisions, who are not that resourceful because school didn't prepare them to live on their own away from their parents. We're just beginning, and we talk about this in the book, to recognize you know, the social and the emotional and the psychological parts of learning and of child development are also so critical. And right now during this pandemic, we've seen so many kids who are really suffering because of the isolation at home and the lack of contact with their peers and teachers. Again, what we need is a greater recognition that policy and the drivers we use, they're no silver bullets, but we need to ask the right questions and asking where's the evidence that kids are being served. And if we don't see that being served, what do we do about it? Those are really important questions. One of these issues you raise here, this kind of underlying tension um, providing resources to schools and then holding them accountable for using those resources as well. Right now in the midst of the pandemic, obviously cuts to the bone. We've got tens of millions of kids whose schools are closed, even though, at least to my reading of the scientific evidence, in almost every one of those cases, those schools can and should be open. That in fact, community health would be well served to have kids in supervised, organized, masked, socially distant schools, rather than 14-year-olds running around 
because rules aren't there for him. So President Biden and the Democrats have obviously put forward a proposal to put $130 billion into K-12, in addition to the $65 billion that was given to schools last year. This is triple what the federal government already gives to K-12 education a year. My gut on this is, look, if schools with all these resources still aren't opening their doors, forget test scores. That's a profound failure of accountability. I'm of the conviction that if these dollars are going to flow out, that there ought to be an expectation that those schools will be open for those kids, except in exceptional circumstances, five days a week, for if parents want to send their kids. And if school districts aren't going to do that, that those dollars either ought to go somewhere else or ought to go directly to families so that they can find what's right for their kids. I'm curious, pal, how, how you're thinking about this. So the, the issue that I don't think we're really addressing very well is trust, right? That is, teachers need to feel as though they're going to be safe when they go back. We know that kids can be asymptomatic spreaders that not only can infect teachers, but their families. So even though there are very few kids who get very sick from COVID, they can bring it home to their families and their grandparents. So that is a legitimate reason for concern. So it should be uh, researchers talking to parents, talking to the community to address those fears. We're seeing the same fears about the vaccine itself. And some of the communities that have been most hard hit by COVID are most reluctant to take the vaccine. So building trust, I think, is an essential part of this. And I haven't seen many communities do this well. I've seen, we've seen Chicago almost had a strike in San Francisco. The city was suing the district about reopening, but no one is really addressing the need for reliable information that people can trust so they'll bring their kids back on their own. Because otherwise, just because you say school's open doesn't mean that suddenly the classroom will be full. Some people are too afraid. So trust is a critical issue. All of this, again, calls to mind for me the, the fact that some of the most important issues in education just don't get the kind of time and attention they need or the thoughtfulness that they need to help the country move forward. We know that wherever poverty is concentrated, schools are struggling. We should by now know schools can't solve poverty by themselves, right? That's bigger than that. At the same time, we know that there are some schools that serve poor kids extremely well. We should be shining a light on those schools and learning from those schools. That is, I think, a really proper role for policy. And I don't know many states that do this. I don't know a single state in the country, in fact, that knows how to help struggling schools improve. And that is a real indictment of the policy apparatus in this country because education shouldn't just be about putting resources into buildings. It should be about improving outcomes for kids. So one of my concerns right now with the federal money that you talked about going to the states is, do the states know what to do with it? Do the districts know what to do with these resources? Will there be a lot of waste? In my opinion, uh, we should create a reserve. And when those districts have a clear plan for what to do with the funds, then we release the funds, but not before. Otherwise, we'll see a lot of wasted resources. You know, one of the things I always feel like is there's kind of a reverse relationship between how sure people are they know how to turn schools around and how well they actually do. You get these folks who are the celebrity for the day, who go on the cover of some magazine, they get a superintendent award. Three years later, they're out of the job, their data turns out to have been cooked, uh, but we're all to a new celebrity yeah. and nobody ever gets called to account. We are looking for the silver bullet. We're looking 
You know, people watch these movies and they, <laughs> they think there are these heroic educators that can just do magic in schools. Sometimes there are. I, mean, I know some educators who have done tremendous work in schools, but it doesn't mean that this work is simple. And I think that that's part of what's, what's also wrong. We don't fully appreciate how challenging it is to address some of the needs of kids, particularly kids who come from the most difficult circumstances. Yeah, you know, I love that. And I think part of that gap that goes to this thing where you get folks who get held up as dynamic leaders. And we've seen this in places from Atlanta, Chicago, Houston, where the data that was used to sell them turns out upon closer scrutiny to have a whole lot of questions about it. And you got to wonder, where were the researchers to kind of put the microscope on this stuff in the first place? But one of the things I loved about our collaboration was talking about issues like serving children in poverty. And one of the things that's frustrated me, especially in the past couple of years, is how it feels like there have become these sweeping, very ideological answers to this that come out of schools of education, come out of district. To me, it's a non-negotiable that part of helping children succeed has got to be about helping them develop the traits of success learn that you've got to be responsible for doing your piece. You've got to be responsible for treating other people respectfully. And parents have a role to play here. And to me, this is true for everybody. I don't care what your income bracket, what your skin color, these are just rules that apply. Now, these should not excuse the fact that there are also system issues, which you point out, I think, powerfully, that there are schools that don't have effective teachers, that there are schools that look at some kids with suspicion and other kids that give them a break that there are all kinds of dynamics at work that we have to address. But one of the things I get nervous about is I hear people talking about these systemic dynamics, systemic racism, institutionalized racism. And along the way, they wind up suggesting the talk of personal responsibility, the talk of being responsible for your actions, of self-discipline, that somehow this is a legacy of whiteness. And for me, the answer has got to be both, not one or the other. Talk of personal responsibility cannot be something we use to not talk about the other hard stuff. When I bring these things up, you're comfortable saying, yeah, that's part of it too, as long as that's understood to only be a part of it. And I'm hoping you can speak to that. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'm hoping that kind of dynamic is something that we can also bring to our listeners. Yeah, I agree with you, Rick. I think that we can talk about the legacy of racism in this country, how it shaped the character of our schools and our communities and talk about the fact that everybody's got to be responsible. You know, the accountability systems we've created hold those with the least power the most accountable. Kids, teachers, uh, some to some degree parents, whereas governors, state legislatures, they need to be accountable too. So accountability needs to be on everyone. And we need to think about it that way if we really want to see progress. You know, I think as a nation, we've got to keep asking ourselves, why is it that we have so much trouble educating so many kids? It's almost mind-boggling that this is really a problem. I've been to many countries, poorer countries than the United States, where educating kids is not a problem. They got other problems, <laughs> but educating kids isn't one of them. And it even shows you, I spend a lot of time in Barbados, a small Caribbean island that has a higher adult literacy rate than the United States. And they send their kids to some of the top colleges around the world. Their issue is they often don't come back because there are no jobs for them in Barbados. But they know how to educate kids so why is it that being poor, being Black in Barbados is not an obstacle to achieving at high levels? That's the question we should ask. What is there about the way we have organized schools, the way we educate kids that has resulted in these persistent disparities 
being so deeply embedded in our country. You know, my friend, I do not think we're going to be hurting for material to cover. Always a pleasure to be with you, pal. Great talking to you again, Rick, and uh, look forward to next time. The two of us have much more to say, but we're out of time for today. If you're interested in hearing more, check out our book, A Search for Common Ground, conversations about the toughest questions in K-12 education. Thanks for listening to Common Ground, conversations on schooling. And thanks to our producers, Tracy Shera and Olivia Shaw. You can subscribe to Common Ground on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, consider leaving us a review. And feel free to let us know what topics you'd like to see us discuss by sending an email to podcast at agi.org. Thanks for joining. Until next time.